Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. Psalm 46 is where we're landing today. Um, Psalm 46, it's a very, very popular psalm. Um, and, uh, and so you can, you can flip there. We're going to be uh, chugging through it for the next three weeks. It'll be a quick little jaunt through Psalm 46. We're going to cover the first three verses today. Next four next week and last four the, uh, the last week. But as, um, as you're getting there, um, I, uh, I brought up a study last week on Easter. And um, the study said that only 6% of adults believe that the world in which their kids are going to grow up in is going to be better than the world that they are currently in now. 6%. And that's a pretty devastating uh, statistic the more that you look at it. And the interesting thing is that study was done last year, but the study was also done again, or before that, six years before that in 2017. Same exact study was done, and that 6% number was actually much higher. That 6% number was actually 37% only six years ago, Um, which still isn't good, but the fact that people's confidence in the future of the world has dropped 31% in six years should probably be relatively alarming to us. And I get it, right? Like, I get it. 2000, 2019, all those different things, like there's a global pandemic, inflation is happening, we're constantly feeling like we're teetering on the brink of World War III, political unrest, all of these things will cause you to have little to no confidence in the future. I've even had conversations with people who are so fearful about the future that it has changed uh, the plans that they have for their own, their own life. They're so concerned with external factors that they can't control that they aren't even having, having kids anymore, right? Countries like Japan and Korea specifically, even America, are slowly beginning to decline in population because young people are opting out of having kids. And on the surface, you're like, great, we don't need any more of those kids or anything like that. But it's actually a really, really devastating uh, idea, In order for our country to maintain its population, a woman has to have an average of 2.1 kids. I said woman. Women need to have an average of 2.1 kids. It'd be hard to have 2.1 kids as a woman. Um, And that's just to remain stable. That's just for our population to remain stable. That's not for growth. That's simply for sustainability. Uh, In America, the birth rate has dropped to 1.7 kids per woman. So it started, it needs to be 2.1, it's dropped to 1.7. So apart from immigration, which is the reason that our country continues to, to increase in number, the U.S.'s population, Japan's population, China's population, Korea's population, a lot of other developed countries' population is beginning to collapse. And the reason for this, this is what the experts say, is the first one is people are waiting to get older uh, to have kids so they're more financial st- financially stable and more ready, right? If you talk to any parent, there's no such thing as being ready to be a parent. But that's the, that's the idea. Yeah, and so because of the fact they're waiting longer, that window for them to be able to have kids shrinks, Right? So if they want it, if they, you know, we're like, we're going to start having kids when we're 22. Great. That window is wide open for a, a much longer period of time. But millennials, Gen Z, those people are beginning to wait until well into their 30s to begin having kids, which means they have only a few years of childbearing left. So that's the first reason. They want to wait until they're older and they're ready to have kids. The second reason is these people don't have any confidence in the world in its current state, especially for bringing young kids into it. 
Now, for me, I grew up in a home where it was just me and my brother and my mom and my dad. So there were four of us, right? That was normal for me. Um, and uh, uh, my wife, though, my wife grew up in a home with her parents and three brothers, so a slightly larger family. So there were six of them, four of four of my family growing up. And so going into our marriage, I'm like, let's play, let's play average, the average game, right? There's four of us, six of you guys. Hey, we should probably have five in our family, right? Makes sense. We'll have three kids. And it'll be a nice little happy meeting. We even had a conversation about, about having three kids before we got married. And I was like, done. Let's have, let's have those three kids. And so when we got married, we were 22. I wasn't ready to be a dad, but my wife... Um, uh, thought she she like she was thought she was behind in terms of having a family, right? She's like, I'm 22. Why don't I have 15 kids at this point? Um, and if you know Sarah, you know that that woman was born actually with an aching uterus. That's not a medical condition. That is just like her biological clock ticking. And she wanted nothing more to be a mom, to pop out some kids, and just kind of take care of those those kids. So I had a plan at that point. Right? My plan at that point was, okay, my wife, she needs someone to take care of. I'm not ready to be a dad. You know what? <laughs> you know what I should do? I'll get her a dog, right? And that's the right call, I feel like. So we got a dog, and it was the greatest dog in the history of dogs. And for a brief moment in time, a very brief moment in time, my wife had something to take care of, right? I had a friend. The baby conversation went away for a little while, and all was right in the world, Right? Fast forward to our first anniversary, and she brings up babies again, right? And I'm still not ready for kids. I'm 23. I'm digging in. So I think the right call is what? Guys, if something succeeds the first time, what do you do? You do it again, right? So I'm 23. I'm like, you know what the right call is? She just needs another dog. That's what we're going to do. So I had another dog. Dog wasn't, wasn't nearly uh, as good. Um, and um, so then something terrible happened, though. Because at this point, Sarah and I, we both have full-time jobs. We bought a house. I'm 23. I'm thinking we have all the time in the world to have some more babies. And then this happened. Sarah's brother and his wife had a beautiful baby girl, and I didn't have the forethought to not let my wife hold that child. <laughs> and so my wife is holding this kid, and she's beautiful, beautiful baby girl. And um, I'm thinking, Sarah, no rush. Like we have plenty of time. Our whole lot. We got married young, you know, it's fine. It's all, it's all good. And so I was like, I'm not ready to have kids. But as she held that child, I heard her biological clock explode um, with, uh, with urgency. And so after that, I was like, no, we're good. We don't need kids yet. And so right after I had said that, we decided that we were going to start having kids. Um, and uh, we popped out Cooper. And then we had another kid after that, Micah, because the first kid always tricks you into thinking that kids are easy, babies are easy, right? So then we had another kid, uh, and then we had another kid, and then we had another kid, and then we had another kid. Um, and here I am, here I was at that point in my early 30s with five kids trying to figure out how this whole thing happened. Um, and I know what you guys are going to say. You know, you know how that happens, right? To which I respond, absolutely I do. That's why we have five kids. But in the midst of populating California, I share all of this. I'm not just it's a comedy routine. Um, uh, in the midst of all of this, midst of populating um, uh, California, never once did I have the thought of should we bring kids into a broken world? Never once did we have that thought. The thought was, Sarah and I love kids. We are good at parenting, and I use we loosely. 
Um, and we have, we have the means, we have the love and care for them, so let's have some babies and grow our family. And I'm not saying everyone needs to have five kids and lose some of their sanity in order to feel content, but that's what's true for Sarah and I. But not everyone sees it that way. Actually, more and more people are opting out because of concern for our world. Combine that with the rising state of, of infertility, which now affects one in 10 couples, whether people talk about it or not. And all of a sudden, for the first time in recorded history, there is a fear that our world's population will begin to decline in the next 70 to 80 years. Why? Fear. Instability. A growing concern that our world is not worth bringing life and love into. So the question becomes, why bring this up? And we bring it up because this is simply one piece of evidence of people allowing the external factors of a broken world to dictate not just their thinking, but also their actions. And that's concerning. And it's true for all of us at one point or another. Our decision-making, our rational thought, our behaviors tend to change based on what is happening around us, right? The pandemic largely is a great example of this. The world shut down, external factors began to impose their will on our lives and our mindset. And because of that, in 2019, there were 8,000 more alcohol-related deaths than projected for the year. Why? Because drinking and alcoholism spiked when external factors had their way. So our behaviors, our decision-making was shifted because of external factors. Or let's simply just talk about what happens to you when you have a bad day at work or you have a bad day with your, your family. External factors come up. They change your emotional state and ability to think critically. And you end up making poor decisions then because of it. Maybe it's simply lashing out at your kids or your spouse. Maybe it's closing everybody else off. Maybe, maybe external factors have aided in your stress and your anxiety disorders. If we allow external factors to dictate the state of our well-being, we are robbing ourselves of the peace and joy that the Lord has for us. And I'm not saying never be upset. Hear me on that. But if external factors are the main predictor of your joy and the main predictor of your confidence in the Lord, then we have some work to do when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, which is what brings us to Psalm 46. And can I just say for a second, I don't know if anybody's like me. I used to get confused about when to say psalm and when to say psalms, right? I don't know if anybody, maybe, maybe you guys are all smarter than me. But the book itself is a collection of these chapters, right? And so each chapter is one psalm. So we would say Psalm 46. But when we're talking about the book, it's a collection of all of these chapters. And so because of that, they are a collection of psalms. So it would be the book of psalms, but we we're reading from Psalm 46, but if I were talking about two psalms, like we would say we're going to read from Psalms 46 and 47. Everybody good on that? There's your English lesson, lesson for the day. But Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. That's it. First three verses. Now hear me on this. We don't have a lot of context for, for this psalm specifically. Historically, we don't know when it was written or who it was, it was written to, what was happening while it was written. So we can't give you much context to it. But like a lot of Old Testament stories, a lot of Old Testament writing, wisdom literature, different things like that, we can always pull the character of God from those stories, right? It's it, it, like what we never want to do is it, when it comes to scripture specifically is read something and then attribute it to our lives as if it was written to us specifically. Okay, this is written to a specific group of people at a specific group of time. 
And so because of that, we have a, we have a very uh, specific um, writings that happen in, in the major and minor prophets, okay? Places like Micah, Jeremiah, different places like that. As a matter of fact, one of the most misquoted verses regarding context is Jeremiah 29.11. Some of you probably have it in your biography for Instagram, right? Um, but Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, those things are true, and those things specifically are true of God. We can understand God's character because of that. God has a plan for your life, okay? But God's plan may not be to prosper your life. Well, but Jeremiah 29, 11 says God has plans to prosper me and not to harm me. Well, yeah, true, but that is written to a specific group of people at a specific, group, at a specific time period. And so because of that, we can't just say, oh, God's plans are to prosper me. Here's, here's an example, right? It's maybe not prosper you in the way that you would assume he was going to prosper you, but God's character. Hey, here's, here's an example. My dad loved Jesus very much. Yeah, he led our family really, really well. When my dad was 55, he passed away from cancer, from a long battle with cancer, years. Well, is that, is that prosperous to my dad? I don't think if any of us sat out here and were like, you know what, you know what I really hope? God prospering me is when I turn 55, I'm going to die. It just seems weird, right? Why? Because this isn't, Jeremiah 29, 11 wasn't written specifically to us. It was written to a very specific people group. But God's character, who he is, we recognize that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to prosper us in the way that we assume he is going to. Same thing is true for Psalm 46. So because we don't know the context, we can't assume it's written to us. But we can assume that his character is revealed in it. So everything that is written about God is true for us in this psalm. Beyond that, Psalm 46, we're going to go in the classroom for a second, okay? Psalm 46, um, it actually has some real serious church history behind it. I don't know if any of you nerd out about church history a little bit, but this is one of the biggest pieces of church history in the entire world, okay? 506 years ago, 506 years ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther Okay, who at one point was deeply entrenched in the Catholic Church. This is a guy who, uh, who, man, he had some serious issues with the Catholic Church once he started actually reading the Bible for himself, understanding what Scripture was saying and all that stuff. He goes, he nails 95 theses to a church door in Germany. And this is the beginning of what we call the Protestant Reformation. Okay, the Reformation actually marks the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. We are of the Protestant arm of those two churches. This is incredibly important, okay? Without this moment in history, we don't exist as a church. We don't exist as Baptists. And so if you're ever looking for some good church history to sink your teeth into, just know the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther are an incredible study. But regardless of that, most people agree that, that agree that Luther's personal transformation actually started four years earlier in 1513. And it started when he was giving a lecture through the book of Psalms. So he's walking through the Psalms, and man, these really, really, I mean, they affected his heart deeply. And so the Psalms gave him a confidence in God. Psalm 46 is one of his favorites, actually, the one that we're studying. It's recorded that oftentimes in, in some of his, his darker moments, Luther would say to his friends, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. Which is pretty incredible because here we, got, we have a guy who, as I'm going to share in just a second, is filled with stress, is filled with anxiety. This is a guy who was not confident, and he takes on the entire Holy Roman Catholic Church and saying what you're doing is wrong, what you're doing is heretical, and because of that, we need to reform back to what Jesus had set up in the first place. 
And so he takes on everybody and he says, you know what? Come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. It's actually the Psalm that inspired a hymn that was written during the Reformation, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Some of you are probably familiar with that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I asked Brian a couple weeks ago, Brian Asbury, I was like, hey man, any chance you can like work with that hymn a little bit? said it's kind of an older hymn and it's really hard to sing. I think there's like pacing changes and key changes and all these different things. And so it's like, I'll do my best. And so like two weeks later, he's like, hey man, I tried. That's just way too hard. We're not going to do that. So I would encourage you on the way home, find uh, a mighty fortress on the way home and you can sing it in your car. But either way, in this psalm, it's, it's broken up into three different sections. Okay, the first three sections, the first three verses is God largely protects us in life's storms. And the next four verses is God gives us peace in life's storms. And the last four verses are God will silence the storms. That's what the entire thing is, is about. So in the first stanza, the first three verses that we just read, we need to recognize that when life falls apart, when the world falls apart, our responsibility is to run to him and no one else. Actually, this psalm couldn't start with the more exalted line where it says, God is our refuge and strength, ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Man, that's strong. I don't care who you are. Honestly, I think we could probably sit on this verse for a while and call it good. The ability to just sit in the peace of God. And so much of our world is wrapped up in just being fearful. Stress and anxiety are rooted in fear. We have a massive mental health crisis on our hands in America. And again, largely it's just due to fear. I'm fearful I'm going to let somebody down. I'm fearful I'm going to fail. I'm fearful I'm not going to be successful in my life regarding my job. I'm fearful. And so because of that, we have just taken on all this stress and anxiety. I'm fearful I'm not going to figure out who I am. And so because of that, we have an identity crisis going on in America as well. And all of it, all of it is based in fear. And so the psalmist, he offers a couple different images for us. The first is the idea that the earth had given way. Okay, the mountains at this point have been tossed into the heart of the sea, as, as it says. The waters are roaring, the waters are, are foaming, the mountains are trembling. In other words, this is not a good time to be alive. And it's probably hard for us to understand this, understand even like the metaphorical language that's going on behind this in the biblical world. Because the mountains and the sea, they both carry really, really significant meaning, metaphorically speaking, in Scripture. So throughout the Bible, the mountain is actually, they're the image of stability. And it makes sense, right, if you think about mountains, right? They just don't move. They don't change ever. If you grew up in Hanford, okay, and maybe you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, the, the, the town that you grew up in 40 years ago is not the same as the town that you currently drive through. Right? It's much, even from the five years that I've been here, driving to work looks drastically different than it did five years ago for me. Why? Because there's all these houses and changing. It used to be orchards, used to be a bunch of different things and development and all of that stuff. But what doesn't change? I'll tell you what doesn't change when I'm driving home after a rain and I look east and I can see those sawtooth mountains that are going on in the Sierra, right? Unchanging, stable. And that's the same that we have with this metaphor in, in the Bible, Year after year, everything changes except for those mountains. So if the mountains, they, they represent stability, the sea actually represented chaos and instability. It represents the, the, the reversal of God's created order. Think about it. God judged the world in Genesis chapter 6 with what? A flood, right? 
It's God returning the world to the state in which it, which it came from in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. And then a bunch of years after that, when the nation of Israel is running away from, G- from, from, uh, from Egypt, rather, they passed through the water. And then what did the water do? Water do? Consume the army. Right? And I get it. Like this image of the sea, it might be hard for us. It doesn't instill as much fear in the modern mind, but we still even try to capture the theology of this when we baptize new believers. I mean, even today. So the, represent- the representation of death, burial, and resurrection. So what is happening They're dead to their sins. They're being buried in their death under the water, the chaos. And they're being risen to new life, right? It's the same thing. These metaphors continue to ring true. The old life has died in a watery grave, right? Like Israel, like Jonah, like Jesus, they've been resurrected now into new life. So the mountains, they represent stability and the sea chaos. But in Psalm 46, we see something actually really fascinating. The sea wins. The chaos wins. And it's in dramatic fashion. The waters, they roar and they foam. And the mountains, they shake with fear. In this text, we see, and hear me on this, what we thought was immovable was consumed by what we fear most. And maybe you felt this way before. I mean, I can think of instances in my life when the towers fell in 2001, what was stable, unshakable, the idea of the country that I grew up in, towers fell, or maybe it fell when the economy tanked in 2008, or maybe it fell when you first heard about COVID or when that whatever phone call came or when you got the diagnosis in the doctor's office or the pregnancy test or the giant F on your report card or the boss who called you into his office for, for a meeting or the notification from the bank, right? Sometimes in a broken world, the chaos wins. And that's hard for us to grasp. That's hard for us to handle. Sometimes the sea swallows the mountain, And that's what Psalms is saying. How should we respond? Because we get that part. Like we understand that sometimes the world falls apart. We understand verses 2 and 3. But what do we do about it? When we go back to verse 1 is what we do about it. People of God should respond with confidence. We will will not fear because God is our refuge and our strength. He has proven himself over and over and over again. The mountains may tremble, but we won't. This is saying God is our fortress. And I know this maybe like sounds maybe a little bit dramatic, even sound impossible if you're prone to, to anxiety. But don't underestimate the power of, of those words. Right, going back to our buddy Luther and the Protestant Reformation, as a child, as a young adult, like I said, this guy was a ball of anxiety and stress, depression even, even as a young adult. In fact, the reason he became, uh, like went to a monastery in the first place and got deeply entrenched in the Catholic Church, the reason he did it in the first place is because he got caught in a thunderstorm by himself and he was overwhelmed with fear. So he, 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 he made a promise and he didn't make a promise to God but he made a promise to a saint, St. Anne, because, again, Catholic Church. St. Anne is known in the Catholic Church as the mother of Mary, as a matter of fact. So he told, he told St. Anne, he said, St. Anne, if you just get me through this, I will join 
a monastery. He promised that if he survived, he would enter into that. And so Luther is looking for refuge. He's looking for some sort of, some sort of sheltering, some sort of escape from the storm. Whatever it takes, I will do whatever it takes. Why? Because my stress and my anxiety and the chaos and the ocean, the sea has won. And the chaos of my life is just, it's coming in on me. The unfortunate thing for Luther, though, is that actually as he joined that monastery, he didn't find refuge. As a matter of fact, his religious devotion only fueled his anxiety and only fueled his depression. He said that he almost killed himself with his vigils, prayers, and reading. He stayed up late into the night, wrestling with the devil, is how he put it. He starved himself. He refused a blanket in the cold stone rooms that were a part of the monastery. The first time he tried to administer mass, the very first time, he was so overcome with fear at that point, he locked up and he ran out of the church. This is, this is Martin Luther. It was a miserable time for Martin Luther. But this is the same guy who ends up taking on the entire Holy Roman Catholic Church and saying, you're wrong, you're heretical. And so Luther in 1517, this ball of nerves and anxiety, man, he takes them on. And he gives a speech, and the speech is very interesting, at what became known as the meeting of the Diet of Worms. Great name. The Diet of Worms. And the Diet of Worms, it, it was because of fact, it was decided that Luther comes out and he's saying, Roman Catholic Church, you're wrong. And what you're doing is wrong. And not only is it wrong, but you're heretical. And he just unleashes on them. And so the Roman Catholic Church are like, you know what? You're going to be excommunicated. And not only are you going to be excommunicated, you can't come into our churches. And beyond that, no one who would say that they are Catholic, no one who would say that they, they are Christian at that point is allowed to give you anything. They can't give you food. They can't give you shelter. They can give you nothing. As a matter of fact, the only thing that you are allowed to do is to have a diet of worms. And this is a guy, ball of fear, anxiety, stress, who clung to Psalm 46, saying, the Lord is my refuge. The Lord, the Lord is, is my strength. And that speech launches this guy into reforming the church as we believe Jesus set it up in the first place. So amid this life storms, whatever storms that maybe you're walking through, it's our job to enter into our refuge, which is God. And I get it. It seems easier said, easier said than done. Why? Because, Peter, you don't, you don't understand what I've gone through. You don't, you don't have my boss. You don't get my financial situation. My loved one is dying. My loved one has died. And to that, I say, you're right. I don't understand exactly where you're at. But I, do, I, I can tell you that I've walked through dark valleys. And there are times in my life where my life has felt like it is falling apart. And what is my responsibility in all of that? To remember that God is my refuge and strength. To go back to verse 1 in Psalm 46. And it's not just a mind game. It's not just like, oh, just fix your, fix your mind on that. Just keep going back to Psalm 46 and maybe you'll feel, you'll feel better. But the hope that we have in God comes from an understanding of his character and it comes from an understanding of a heart for his people. The Bible is riddled with instances of God inviting us into his presence, not just for peace, but for protection as well. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Right, Sarah, my wife this morning, she was like, oh, I was in Matthew 11. Or no, she's, she, what did she say? She said, come to me all who are heavy, we heavy, weary, and burdened, and I will give you rest, right? It's this one they're going to read right now. And I was like, oh, Matthew 11. She's like, wow, I'm impressed. I was like, yeah, I'm preaching on it today. Um, 
That's what it says. It says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus there. So Matthew, he relates to Jesus' invitation for us to, to rest in him. And this rest comes and we accept his authority over our lives. And we give him control at that point. He uses the image of a, uh, of a yoke, which is a wooden frame used to keep two oxen together as they, uh, as they pulled a plow or pulled a cart. And these are extremely heavy and placed on beasts of just like burden. But Jesus, he flips the word on its head when he says that his yoke is actually easy. What he is saying is, is his lordship, his guidance over our lives is not burdensome. His guidance over our lives is actually a blessing, submitting to his authority and will for our lives. Man, that's what's going to bring us rest. And so this is the purpose of refuge, to be able to rest in safety. That's just one instance. John 10, it's an incredible passage. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. In this chapter, he actually, he talks about how he was different from other shepherds who came before. He said he doesn't run away when, when trouble comes, but he stays and he lays down his life for his sheep in John 10, 15. Right? And later on, he says that no one can snatch his sheep from him, John 10, 28 and 29. They've been given to him by the Father, and no one has the power, no one has the authority to take them away. Paul actually echoes the same thing in Romans 8, 38, and 39, where he says that nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The one in whom that we take refuge cannot lose us. He cannot fail. No one can overpower him. If we are in the hand of God, we are secure, is what the Bible tells us over and over and over again. Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, it says this, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. So God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set forth before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul firm and secure. It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer of the Hebrews here, yeah, he talks about, he tells us that when God made a promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, he then confirmed that promise by swearing an oath. And not just swearing an oath, but he swore an oath by himself because there is nothing higher, nothing greater than he is. So the beauty is that Abraham believed God and waited patient for him to deliver on his promises. And he did it because it is impossible for God to lie. For God to lie would be for him to deny his true nature, for him to deny who he actually was. And so in that case, he would not be God. So just like Abraham, we need to have confidence that the God we take refuge in, 
will keep his promises. And to be clear, the Bible doesn't say take refuge in God. Okay, it gives us examples of what it should look like. A great example is, is David. David is a guy who went through a lot of tough times in his life. And some of them, a lot of them were because of his own sin. Yet in spite of that, he praised God in good times and he praised God in, in bad times as well. And he was honest about his situations. And so because of that, the Lord was never far from his mind. He was consistently going back to him. David had incredible peace and hope in hard times. Why? Because he found refuge in God. You want to go to the New Testament? Let's go to the New Testament. We can look at the apostles as, as these guys, these men who sought out refuge in God. All right, keep in mind, these men did not have easy lives. I mean, before Jesus came into their lives, they were fishermen. So they always smelled and it was hard labor. Okay? That's why you should never hang out with fishermen. I'm just kidding. Um, there's one guy I know who took offense to that. Um, but it was a hard, hard life for them. And so after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, church tradition actually tells us that all of the apostles were martyred except John. Every single one of them. And it wasn't that they didn't try to kill John. They just weren't allowed to kill John. And so they, they end up exiling John onto an island of Patmos where he eventually dies of old age. And these men were persecuted. These men were, men were beaten, dragged before courts in prison, shipwrecked, betrayed, starved. In regards to that, they found hope, they found rest, they found peace in God. The book of Acts alone details tons of accounts of the apostles and early Christians who sought out refuge in God. And so to hear that God is our refuge, it may seem sound, sound cliche sometimes, right? Like, okay, that's what Christians are supposed to say. You're having a hard time, seek out refuge in God. But it may be helpful for us to consider what it means for God to be our refuge and why we can be confident in that reality. Or taking refuge in God may not mean that all of our troubles miraculously go away when we go to God for help. Actually, there's nothing in all of Scripture that guarantees any of that. But it does mean that when we intentionally sit in the presence of God, we will find peace, we will find rest, and we will find strength to keep fighting the battles in front of us. Right? Next, next time we feel like giving up or think we can't bear another day of, of wrestling with our circumstances, wrestling with the external factors, what's our responsibility? To run through the, heavenly, the, the arms of our Heavenly Father and find rest for our souls. And so I'll finish with this. Oftentimes when we're presented with a problem in our lives, there's, there's two options. Christians specifically, I mean everybody, I guess, two options. We either run to God or we, want to raise, we run away from God. You can all probably think about times in your life when you've had a difficult time, you thought, you know what, I'm good. I can handle this. God, I got this on my own. And of that, I am chief of sinners. I love the opportunity to say, you know what, God, I'll take care of it. You just take the day off. I got it. And I run actively. I'm running away from God. And the reality is I should be running, running towards him. Because over the last five years at our church, we've had some incredible days. Last weekend, man, I could live that weekend over and over and over again. It was absolutely incredible. You know, we had 924 people here. Over 200 kids, or almost 200 kids, rather. 19 baptisms. And the best part was, because all of that was going on, I only had to preach for 30 minutes. And you guys all got out of here on time. You were like, yeah, Amen. But I could live that, and that was a great weekend to look at like what God has done. And in weekends like that, you don't have to worry about seeking refuge in the Lord. You don't have to worry about it. Why? Because everything's going fantastically. The worst thing that happened is we ran out of donuts early. 
which was fine for me because I got one before all you guys showed up. And so we don't have to worry about those things. But then there's other weeks, specifically other weeks that have happened over the course of the last five years when, when we were doing our best in our church to be able to, to, to just like realign to health and make sure what we were doing was consistently just pointing people towards God, not, not circle the wagons and not, not do our best just to build people up who are here, but be in our community. All of the changes that we've tried to make and some of those difficulties, they happen behind the scenes. We don't need to talk about them from stage. Some of the frustrations, the people who have left and all that stuff. And believe me when I say there have been nights when I have been laying in my bed with my eyes wide, wide open, staring at the ceiling, full of anxiety and thinking like, God, where are you? Like you told me, you told me to go to Hanford. And there's just people leaving. There's just people leaving. Like, like where, where are you in the midst? And I just like white knuckle it and like do my best. Like, no, I'm going to figure it out. If our systems are a little bit better, if I preach a little bit better, if I encourage Brian to sing a little bit better, like we do, that's <laughs> uh, not nice. But if, I, but, if, but if I just can do these things, then maybe the issue will be resolved. Rather than, like, and, I've, and I've done that. And, and then there's other times where I think to myself, God, like, I, I know that you're in this because you've called me to this. You've called our church to this. So God, I'm just going to give it to you and I'm going to do my best to get a good night's sleep because you're my refuge and you're my strength and I can't do it apart from you anyway. So God, take it and I'm going to go to bed. Amen. And that's the reality of the situation. And so that's... So hear me, I'm not saying I got anything figured out when it comes to leading a church. But what I am saying is that we as a church will continue to have two options. You as an individual will continue to have two options. You as, you as a person, you as a family will continue to have two options. You can run away from God and do your best to white knuckle the situation. Or you can seek shelter in the creator of the universe who continues to go before us. I spent a lot of times and a lot of late nights doing those same things. The reality is it doesn't matter if you're the strongest person in the world, God is stronger. It doesn't matter if you have everything done on your to-do list and you think, I got it under control, God. No, God's got it more under control than you do, I promise. It doesn't matter if you're married to the person who has the to-do list, God's got you too. God is stronger. The most well put together in the pers person in the world is stronger. He is your refuge. And he is your strength. And God is simply waiting for you to walk back into his presence so he can guard you, so he can protect you, so he can sustain you from whatever life is throwing at you. Why? Man, so you can get a good night's sleep and recognize that God's got it under control. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our mighty fortress. God, thank you that you are our strong tower, as Scripture says. Thank you that you are our refuge. Thank you that you are our strength, that we don't have to do it on our own, God. And God, I pray for those people who are in here right now who just think, I, I, like, I don't know what else to do. That the external situations that I find myself in, that they are dictating so much of my life. They are dictating so much of my stress. They are dictating so much of my anxiety. I don't know what to do. God, I pray that you would just continue to stand at the door and knock. That we would run to you, that we would be willing to open that door and seek refuge and seek strength. 
where we have none left. And God, we recognize you're not gonna, you're not gonna alleviate us of all of the problems because that's just simply part of being human. But God, you tell us that you'll give us the strength to continue fighting another day. And so God, give us the strength to continue fighting another day. And for those in here who maybe have not said yes to Jesus before, maybe have not said yes to this God who was our refuge and our strength and made that profession of faith, if that's you this morning and you just need to cast your cares upon the Lord with head still bowed and eyes still closed, you can just make that profession of faith this morning. You can pray with me, the quietness of your own heart. You can simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And that son was resurrected so many years ago. We celebrated last week. I believe that, Father. And C, I choose to follow you every single day. Meaning I'm going to actively turn away from my sin. And I'm going to run into the refuge and strength of the arms of my heavenly Father. Thank you for being our strength when we have none. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.